Well, good morning to everyone. Good morning, good morning. It is great to be here. It really is. Like it was said, uh, my name is Larry Keating. If you want, you can call me Steve. I guess that's common here. Whatever you would like to call me, that is fine. But my my friends and family call me Larry. But it is great to be here. Uh, my family and I, uh, this is our first time here at Boulevard um, Bible Chapel. We really appreciate just the warm invitation and hospitality. We came in late last night and we were able to stay at the house and we really, really do appreciate that. We have been missionaries in the Philippines since 2008. Um, we have three children, um, Tyler, who will be 11 next, next month, Abby is nine, and our little Andrew is two and a half. Um, so when we first went to the Philippines, um, our kids were three and one, and maybe minus five or whatever that is for Andrew. Um, Andrew was actually born in the Philippines two and a half years ago. Um, currently, our schedule is pretty much what we do is we're in the Philippines for about three years, and then we come back to the States. Um, I grew up in the Chicago area. Um, so home base is kind of in Chicago. Um, so we do three years in the Philippines and then one year um, in the in the U.S. Um, as our time with furlough, uh, visiting churches like you guys, and then as well as spending good time um, with our family as well. Definitely good to be here. I saw Johnny here, Johnny Gill. Uh, we met at Emmaus Bible College in 1997. Haven't seen him since '98. Um, I recognized him. I think we both have changed a little bit since 98. Um, we've been married, have kids since then, but it's definitely great um, to see a familiar face. So in the Philippines, um, the Lord called us to Faith Academy. Um, we'll talk about this more this evening at the missionary um, class um, this evening. But Faith Academy um, was started in 1957 um, by missionaries in the Philippines. Um, they realized that they were really lacking, a, their children were lacking a really good education. So the missionaries in that area said, we need to start a school for our own children. Here we are serving um, the Filipinos, um, but our children really need a good education. Uh, they had nothing. That's why they, st- they named it Faith Academy. They didn't have teachers. They didn't have a building. They didn't have books. They had nothing. But they said, we need to start this school. So... Um, Part of that, it's pretty neat that part of that, actually, my wife's parents were missionaries, or not parents, but family. Her great-grandfather, um, Sarah Brooks, went to the Philippines in 1922, 23. Um, we're actually um, fourth generation of missionaries in the Philippines, and, and my wife's family, our kids are fifth generation, uh, which we are praising God for that. But her, um, her great-grandparents and grandparents were part of, of Faith Academy, of, of starting it. So Faith Academy, now 50-plus years ago, we continue to strive to give a great education for missionary kids. Um, our school is pre-K um, to 12th grade. Um, we have about 500 students, and then we're still about 80% of those are missionaries. Uh, Manila, we're right outside of Manila, Philippines. Manila is a large, large city, um, people-wise. There's 11 million people in Manila, and then in the suburbs, there's another 10 to 11 million people after that in about six square miles, if you can believe that. Very, the most populated city in the world. With that, there's a lot of traffic, which we don't enjoy very much, Um, but... Again, our, 
we really have a heart for missionary kids, trying to minister to them and give them a great education. Um, the last three years, um, I've been kind of working in sports medicine. My background is in physical therapy. Um, I worked in, as a physical therapy assistant um, before we went to the Philippines for seven years. So that's kind of my, my forte. And um, three years ago, they asked me to start this athletic training program for the sports. So my primary role is I watch a lot of sports. I'm at every practice, every game. Uh, but I uh, really take care of their injuries. So taping, um, I do conditioning, um, I do all sorts of um, I do a lot, but all sorts of things um, for the school. But we really enjoy being able to um, being able to have a relationship uh, with these missionary kids. We've been able to really uh, have great um, relationships with them and to encourage them um, in the Lord. If you want to know more about that, you can come tonight, and we'll have many more details um, after that. So we're going to continue your study here in 2 Samuel. I was asked to continue this. So we are, this morning we're in 2 Samuel, chapters 19 to 21. <clears throat> 2 Samuel, chapters 19, 20, and 21. There's definitely a lot of content here, so you can follow with me if you would like, but we're just going to give kind of a summary of what's going on here in 2 Samuel, and then we will have some couple thoughts and challenges at the end. So as you know here, I trust we've been doing this the last couple of weeks. So here, Absalom, sorry, excuse me for one second. Absalom took over here in Jerusalem. And David and his army were fighting against Absalom, but David ordered not to kill him because it was his son. And he protected, even though Absalom rebelled and went against his, his father and against his nation, David wanted to protect him. But he was killed in battle. And here at the end of, at the end of chapter 18 and here in the beginning of chapter 19, we read that, that David was mourning the death of his son. He was mourning the death of his son. He couldn't do anything else right now. He was just mourning and mourning and mourning. This makes sense. This is his son that he loved. But his son, like we said, went against everything that he was taught. So here, David's commander, his chief commander, Joab, is frustrated with David, that he is still mourning. His argument is that the army is not able to celebrate their victory because David is mourning. He says that, David, we saved your life. You were going to die here in battle, so we killed your son to protect you. You're being selfish. You're acting like you would rather have your son here alive and all of us dead. He said, we should be excited. We should be in victory because we are restoring your kingdom, but you are upset because your son is, is dead. So he encourages David to go and encourage his men and go back to his people. David listens and heads to the gateway of the city. Again, it makes sense that David was mourning his son. It's hard. I've seen some people in my family. It's hard when we have loved ones that go, that go away from the Lord. 
it's hard when they stray away and we're trying to focus on what we are supposed to be doing and that sometimes it's hard when a stray one goes away. We, of course we still love them, but we may not agree with the lifestyle that they are doing. But David is wise, so he listens to Joab and he goes back to his people and to his army. So next what happens is David returns to Jerusalem. Now, not everyone in Israel is really a big fan of David. Some did not like the fact that David fled. They felt like he was acting like a coward and he he should have stood up for his people. But instead, he ran away for his own safety. So some of them didn't agree with what David did, and they were not very welcoming, welcoming to David. The kingdom was split. But Judah, David's tribe, they were happy to to have him back, but they were the last tribe to welcome him. It's interesting that sometimes in our own hometowns, they're the last people to come to us. I think of Jesus. He said the same thing when he went back to Nazareth. He's like, "You, you guys saw me grow up, but you will not even listen to me. The same thing with, with Judah. They're, they're the last people to welcome back. But they come back, and they bring him across the Jordan River. It is good to welcome people. We definitely feel you're welcome here this morning. And I think about those that have maybe gone astray and they come back to church. It's really important to welcome those people. Us as missionaries, it's really good to welcome missionaries back to your home church after being away for three years we when we come back to our home church in warrenville bible chapel outside of chicago it's we can't wait to go back to home we can't wait to come back to our assembly what if our assembly didn't welcome us back (laughs) do you think we would feel very appreciated not so much we need to welcome people We need to show them Christ. We need to show them the warmth and love that we have through through Jesus Christ. So there's a couple different people here that came came back um, to David. David was met by Shemai. Shemai is an interesting character. He actually talked bad about David. He badmouthed him. He he was talking against David against David and kind of behind his back and how terrible David was. So as soon as David comes back across the river, Shemai comes in and he says, please accept my forgiveness. I have talked bad about you. And David says, I accept your forgiveness. A great reminder that we need to forgive as Christ has forgiven us. We need to forgive each other. We're going to get ra- we're going to get wronged <laughs> in this life. People are going to be doing things to us. People are going to talk bad about us. Um, people are not going to support us all the time. But we need to forgive each other. Next, David is also met by a man who I will try to pronounce his name. It's Methuselah. Um, this is Saul's grandson, jo- Jonathan's son. He was a lame man. We don't know exactly what kind of handicap he had, but he was a lame man. When David sees him, he says, why did you, they were really close. 
They were a really close relationship. And he said, why did you not follow me out of Jerusalem into exile? Why did you not follow me? And because he was lame, he said, my servant wronged me. His servant was supposed to help him get on a horse and help him pack because he's lame. He's not able to do these things. His servants suspectedly probably didn't support David, so he just didn't take care of him and didn't send him over there. And again, David accepts his policy. He says, that's fair. That is fair. So then the tribe of Judah and all of David's family, they come. They're going to cross the Jordan River. After they cross the river here in Israel, a lot of people were upset. To me and to all of us, this probably seems pretty silly. But Judah came to meet David and kind of gave him a little party, a little celebration that he came back. But then the rest of Israel were upset that they were not invited to this party. They said, why did you come to meet David and did not invite us? So again, there's this huge uproar between these two tribes, between Judah and the rest of Israel. It kind of reminds us, it's kind of silly sometimes what we dispute about. What churches sometimes, in our church, we call it the carpet debate. You know, if you get new carpet, it's like, what colors the carpet? Some churches have split over the color of carpet. It seems a very silly, silly thing. And there's other things that churches have split over. And it's like, are these things really that important? What is really important? And I kind of think this is one of those carpet debates. Does it really matter that you were not invited to, to, to come welcome David? But it becomes this huge divide. And we'll see in the next chapter that it really is this divide against Judah and the rest of the tribes in Israel. Often pride, I think, gets in the way. Pride gets in the way often. And when we don't get our way, that's what causes arguments. We're looking out for ourselves and not for the benefit of others. This leads us into chapter 20. So here in chapter 20, it's the rebellion of Sheba. Sheba is a descendant, a relative of Saul, the former king of Israel here. And he despises David. He despises David. He is from the tribe of Benjamin, which is Saul's tribe. And the tribe of Benjamin and Sheba, they don't like that David is from um, from his tribe, they don't like that he's from the tribe of Judah. Reminds me of two different, like Republicans and Democrats. They don't really like each other, and they don't like if someone else is in office from a different party. And that's kind of what's going on here. So when David comes back into Jerusalem, Sheba says, I'm going to overtake him. And that's kind of what Absalom was trying to do. Absalom was trying to take over. So Sheba here rises to go against David. And here Joab is back. Joab was demoted um, as the chief general from David. And Amasa um, comes now to be the commanding general. Amasa, he, he didn't do exactly what David um, asked him to do. So then 
David demotes him and then appoints Abashi here, which is Joab's brother, to be the commanding general. So the command, the the plan here is to capture Sheba because David fears that Sheba is going to do a lot of damage. Sheba is going to be worse than Absalom and is going to rebel and take over the city. So it's interesting here. The next event that happens is Joab actually kills Amasa. Um, they were actually said they were good friends. So Joab, what he does, he drops his sword, and then he comes, he comes up, he gives him a kiss, he grabs his beard, he takes his spear, and he stabs him right in the stomach, and then leaves him dead. The reason why he does this is because he wants to be chief general again. So he just says, I'm going to kill him and get rid of him. As I'm reading this, just crazy, crazy stuff. This stuff actually happens. You know, when they didn't get their way, they just killed each other. And it made me think about David. We know that David was a man after God's own heart. David went through a lot of turmoil. He went through a lot of being king. I, growing up, I just figured David was king, everything was happy, and everything was perfect, and David was just had this perfect life. But that is not at all what David went through. And we see this just as his, his, he has two generals here, two commanders that are envy of each other, and they, one of them kills the other to take his position. This is what David had to go through. And yet in the Psalms we read, he had so much praise for God. Among all of this, David was able to praise God. So now, kind of Joab kind of says, I now killed this other guy, so now I'm going to take over. I'm going to be commander, and I am going to make David happy, and I am going to capture Sheba. So Sheba escaped to a nearby land called Abel Bath Maka, and Joab and the army followed him. There's a woman in the city, and she was concerned that the whole army was going to destroy their city. So she comes out and she says, "What are you guys doing here? You're gonna, you're gonna kill. You're gonna destroy our city." And Joab explains that there's this man, Sheba. He's a very, very bad person, and we need to capture him. So she said, "Okay, I will take care of it for you." So she went to the people of her city, and they found Sheba, and they, then they kill him. And then it's kind of interesting. Joab actually gets promoted then. He's back up to general, and he does get his job back. And then it leads us to chapter 21. From chapter 21 to the end of Second Samuel to chapter 24, now we're going to start, they're kind of highlights of David's career, of his reign. They're, they are not chronicle order, but they are in order by topics. Here in chapter 21, we read of two more stories here. The first story was um, of the three-year famine um, that they had in the land that was caused by Saul. Saul had broken the covenant with the Gibeonites, and Joshua was tricked and made a treaty with them that Saul broke by trying to destroy the Gibeonites. 
So then Paul tries to go and make peace with the Gibeonites. He tries to um, tries to kind of amend their their troubled relationship. And he was going to give them gold. He was going to give them. He's like, what can I give you? What can I help you um, to restore our relationship? And they say, all we want is the execution of seven of Saul's male descendants. So David agreed, and he killed um, seven of Saul's grandsons. And then they were killed and buried. And then the next account that we read of in the end of chapter 21 is the count of five battles against the Philistine giants. In the first battle, David was almost killed, but he was rescued. And then after that, David was not allowed to fight any more battles because they didn't want him to die. So the next four battles um, were fought by other men, um, including um, they killed Goliath's brother. As you can see, there's a lot of stuff. That was just a summary (laughs) of the story here. There's a lot of stuff in here. We could take... So many different applications. But what I really saw here in this passage is that there is a battle. David was a great warrior. He killed thousands of ten thousands of ten thousand people. He was a great warrior and he was famous for his battles. And here we read about some of the battles that he had. It reminds me of Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. Ephesians 6, verse 12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We have struggles. We have battles. But they're not against the physical armies. They're not against people that are trying to revolt against us. But our struggle is against flesh and blood. We know that the devil is trying to capture us. He's like a roaring lion. He's chasing us and he's trying to devour us. We are in a spiritual battle. Sometimes it's defeating Sometimes I feel like, do I have to continue to fight day after day? The battle, the struggle is real. As I was reminded this morning, we're gazing on the Lord of glory. And I love that. We're gazing on the Lord of glory. And Johnny was kind of talking about how awesome that glory is. And if we're gazing on the Lord of glory, it means that he has victory. The Lord has won the victory. The victory is his. In 1 Corinthians, it says, Death, O death, where is your victory? But the victory is ours through our Lord Jesus Christ. He has given us victory. We battle day after day. But God has already won the victory. He fights the battle for us. This story also reminds me of a king. Just like David came back to his people, our king will also come back. I was also thinking about that this morning as we were looking at the emblems, is that 
when we gaze upon the king of glory is that he is coming back for us. That gives us hope. Without the hope of his return, there's really no hope. There's no point of living this life. There's no point to really ministry. There's no point to living overseas and being a missionary if Jesus is not coming back for us. And that gives us the victory. Revelation chapter 17, verse 14 says, They will wage war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will triumph over them. Because he is the Lord of lords and king of kings, and with him he will be called chosen and, excuse me, and with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. Our king is coming back, and he will have victory. That's such an encouraging thought as we are here, as we go through times. It's such an encouragement that our king will return. I was reminded, um, I don't know if anybody has watched the news, but um, the Philippines, we have a lot of typhoons. And uh, last night, the Philippines was hit um, by a, a large typhoon. I was actually able to look on Facebook, and I, there's a lot of flooding in Manila right now. Um, it's really underwater. Um, we've experienced this many times. It's pretty much around this time, September, October, where we'll get a big typhoon. Um, I remember about six years ago, we had uh, we had 17 inches of rain in about 20 hours. Um, so pretty much overnight. Um, the um, the drainage in the Philippines is terrible. <laughs> so you pretty much have all this water. Um, there's so much garbage in the streets. And in the um, in the streets, um, so when the rain comes, it just rises. I mean, it's very common to have five feet of water um, just in the streets. That hit again last night. Um, and what happens is also um, the levees get full, um, the rivers get full. So what they choose to do instead of letting the levees just kind of overflow, they just release it. So then you have the levees and the dams; they are released, and the water is just it's like a raging water and it just rips um through the city there's a lot of poor people that have their houses they build their own houses on other people's lands and they're on the river and these houses just get wiped out so please pray for the philippines there manila is under a lot of a lot of water i haven't heard of any death totals but there's usually a lot of deaths um, because people just get get wiped away The struggle is real. We all go through struggles. We all go through floods in our life. Filipinos are if you going to the Philippines. The Filipinos, Filipino people are the most encouraging and happy people I've ever met. They come to you and they're just so smiling. Um, during floods, I've taken lots of pictures during a flood, and there's there's some mourning, but they just they just have fun. I have pictures of Filipinos. There's about this much water, and they're still playing basketball. 
Um, I've gone to different neighborhoods. I like to take a lot of pictures. So sometimes during a big flood, I'll just go into a neighborhood and just take pictures. And I find kids that they have a piece of plywood and they're just in the alleyways and they just kind of body surf um, in their streets of water. It's just like a fun I don't want to say celebration, but it's just a fun time for them. They're able to, even in the midst of, of all of this tragedy, they have, they have this peace. They have this joy um, that, that you can just see that just comes out of them. When we go through hard times, that is what we are called to do. In, in James, it says, consider it pure joy. That is when we go through hard times, when we go through floods, when we go through these times, that is when we grow. Over the last seven years since being in the Philippines, I have grown so much. And that's because God has been working on, on my weaknesses, the stuff that I don't, I don't want to admit that I have. He's put me in different positions and given me different roles that has really caused me to develop and to be able to grow. And that's what these trials, that's what these persecutions, that's what these floods and these battles do. They help us to grow. They help us to be who God wants us to be. God doesn't want us to be just a a new Christian. He wants us to grow. He wants us to develop. He has a plan for each and one of us. That He wants us to be who he created us to be. And sometimes we need to grow. Sometimes we need that pain. My son is almost 11, Tyler. And a lot of times he's like, Daddy, oh, I have growing pains. My legs hurt so much. And I'm like, yes, Tyler, I've been there. I've grown, obviously, a lot. And uh, I said, I know, Tyler. But in order to grow, your body, the bones are, are growing so fast and they're just pulling all the ligaments and the tendons and they have to, they have to be stretched. And that causes pain, but unless you want to be in a 10 year old's body for the rest of your life, you have to go through this pain in order to grow. And as Christians, we also have to go through these things that we, we have to go through pain and we don't, we wouldn't choose to do that. But God takes us, and even though we have pain, he makes us stronger. When a bone breaks, the bone actually comes, and it gets stronger after a break. And that's what God wants us to be. He wants us to be stronger. He wants to, he wants to draw us closer to him. When I think about these things, I think about, um, think about my mom. Uh, my mom is just an awesome lady, and um, I wish you all could meet her. Um, she's gone through some struggles in her life. Um, when I was um, actually um, a little bit after Emmaus, when I was 22, um, my dad split, and uh, my parents were divorced a couple of years ago, years after that. And my mom was so broken, so broken after my dad left. And um, she had actually had to go through um, some hospital um, inpatient um, counseling, and um, just she was so broken after that, but she held on to God. And um, after that, she she was back to her joyful spot. And she said, I'm closer now than I have ever been. And she said, I told the Lord I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have told him this, but I told him I want to be closer to you than I've ever been. 
And God took my dad away in order to bring my mom closer. And she just, she, it took her a while to come back, but she was able to be closer to God and to be full of him. And about seven years after that, um, she started having some vision changes. And um, she, she went to her normal eye doctor, and um, she said, I have some floaties and some, some, just some weird vision things. So the eye doctor looked at her eye and um, saw some hemorrhaging in her eye. And she said, you need to see a specialist, like, right now. I'm going to call him right now, and you're going to go. And so my mom called uh, my wife, Kim, and said, can you take me? And it just happened that I was sick that day, so I was able to kind of watch our kids. Kim left, went to the specialist. They did about three, um, three hours of testing. Um, they went back the next day to get the results. And uh, my mom had a um, malignant melanoma um, in her eye. She had a tumor in the back of her eye, and it was pressing against um, the artery there, which was causing that hemorrhaging, and it was right against the optic nerve. And the doctor said, he said, the best thing to do is just to remove your eye. Um, he said we could do some other things, but the best thing is just to remove the eye and to remove the tumor. But he said, I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to see another specialist. Um, so he sent her to Chicago, uh, to University of Chicago, um, and this specialist said, yeah, the best thing is, we, he said, we could put some radiation, a chip in the eye. Um, he said, you could lose about 90% of your vision, and the tumor might not completely go away, and it's a pretty painful process. So he said, I agree. It's probably best just to remove your eye. Um, so then after that, she had to go see an oncologist and get a, a body scan, and they found a precancerous tumor um, in her intestines at that time as well. So then she went to another doctor to kind of get that, and he said, he said, we need to get that out um, fast. We need to get that out soon. Um, so she had both doctors that wanted to do both surgeries. Really, no, this is important. No, this is more important. Uh, so she got her eye removed. And then two weeks later, she got a procedure called a Whipple procedure, which is they really take out a lot of things, the intestine, the pancreas, and they kind of take that out and then kind of rework it back together. Um, so she had that done. And she was in the ICU for a couple of days. She was in the hospital for a week. And uh, her doctor looked at her and said, you are a miracle. And she's like, I know. <laughs> she's like, I know. And she said, you know what? My eye, at first, it was traumatic for her to think about losing her eye. And she said, my eye saved my life. She had no symptoms of what was going on in her intestines. She had no symptoms, no pain. She felt totally fine. But because of this tumor in her eye, they were able to find um, this tumor in her, in her intestines. It already spread to her pancreas, and the doctor really said, you probably, in a couple months, it would have been full-blown. Um, this was three months before we were leaving to the Philippines. Three months, and we're like, all right, God, what are you doing here? But in those three months, my mom fully recovered. Um, she's a, she, at that time, she was an emergency room nurse, and um, she was really nervous about going back to the, to the ER. She's like, I only have one eye. 
And one of her ER docs said, Deb, you're a better nurse with one eye than some other nurses here that have two eyes. But by the time we were going back, by the time we were leaving for the Philippines in June, my mom was um, back at work in the ER doing uh, tw- her 12-hour shifts. And she was completely restored after that. About two years after we were in the Philippines, my mom came to visit us, and she said, I really like it here. So she went back home, and she's like, Larry, I want to come and serve in the Philippines with you guys. So after a year, she was able to do that, and she came to the Philippines for two years, and she was a nurse um, in orphanages and taking care of orphanages in the Philippines. My mom is the happiest person, the kindest, most warm person that you ever meet. You would never know that she went through these two things. And she'll tell you, you know, divorce and cancer is the two things I feared the most. The two things that I would never have ever wanted to go through. And she had to go through both of those. But she has come out. And because of that, she is the closest she has been ever to God. And she continues to serve God. She continues to be used by God. My mom is a great example to me of what it means to go through a hard time, what it means to to count it all joy, to be able to say, okay, God, I don't like what I'm going through. I don't like this pain that, that is in my life, but may you receive the glory. May your will be done. May you use this tragedy to bring me together. May you use this battle. May you have victory in this battle that I am in. And may you use it for your glory. God wants to use all of us. Sometimes we can be discouraged by things that we go through, but he wants to use us. And he's not trying to tear us away. He's trying to bring us closer to himself. He wants to use us for him. So when we go through these battles, when we go through these hard times, it's encouraging to remember that God has victory. And that Jesus is coming back. He has not just left us abandoned. He is coming back to bring us to him. And we will be with him forever and ever. And we can praise him and give him the worship and glory that will even fail to compare to the great time that we had this morning. Our worship in heaven will be so much better. And we can worship Jesus and give him the worship and the praise that he deserves. I hope this message kind of encourages you this morning as it has encouraged me as well. Let's, um, let's uh, close our meeting in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this time. Uh, we thank you for these reminders. And we thank you that we have a God that loves us unconditionally. That loves us even more than we can ever imagine. Lord, as we look at David's life and we see all the battle, we see all the war, we see all the tension that there was in his kingdom. We are reminded of the tension that we have in the world that we live in today. There's many that oppose you. There are many that hate you. There are many that work against you. And they also, because of that, they also 
hate us and work against us. But Lord, we thank you that we do not fight this battle alone, that you are with us and that you help us. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue to help us grow. We would continue to help us to be strong and to be to be useful for your kingdom. We thank you, Lord, that you are the king of kings and you are the Lord of lords and you have victory and you will come back for us and we will be able to be with you forever and ever. Lord, we long for that day. Help us to not forget our hope that we have in you. Pray that you would encourage us this week and be with us. In your name we pray. Amen.